Hey, my name is Sean, and I like learning about how things work and why. By day, I'm a designer and researcher, and I moonlight by interviewing exceptional people here on Promise. Every episode of Promise is an open-ended discussion on the idea of Promise itself. Whether that's the potential for success or the commitments we make to get there, Promise showcases tomorrow's heroes before they get famous. In this week's episode, I host Kieran Ardren, founder of Constance Coffee. Constance Coffee is a boutique micro-roasting coffee company based in Melbourne, Australia, through which Kieran is perfecting the art of his award-winning coffee roasting. We have a discussion about how Australia became famous for specialty coffee, communicating the art of coffee, why the best quality roasters stay small, the volatility in coffee supply chains, the power of networking and kindness, and what the world looks like if it all pans out. Please enjoy my discussion with Kieran Ardren. So today on the show, we have Kieran Ardren, founder of Constance Coffee. Kieran is the man behind some award-winning coffee roasts and has just stepped out on his own to start Constance Coffee, which is a specialty a coffee roaster based in Melbourne, Australia. Kieran, welcome to the show. Hi, Sean. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you on board. Okay, so you are based in Melbourne, Australia. And for anybody who knows coffee, Melbourne and indeed Australia generally has a reputation for having some rather excellent coffee. How did Australia, of all countries, come to have a coffee reputation? We're not really known for being particularly good in any one thing, but it seems to be that coffee is one of those things. Yeah, for sure. I think the style of service of coffee in a way that people really like is done very well here. As an immigrant from South Africa, the understanding that I've developed in this state particularly, so in Victoria, a lot of the gold rush, early enterprise made Victoria and Melbourne one of the richest cities and states in the Commonwealth at the turn of last century. The separation of tea rooms and provision of service in a seated environment led its way to creating brunch cafes as we see them now. That little head start in terms of providing brunch differently than it might be done in the rest of the world in a very informal, casual kind of way, but with separate and dedicated focus on really high quality, intricate meals, set a pathway for success in building businesses like that. Restaurant quality food anytime before midday, really. And that was it. It was lots of complexity, friendly service, the ability to have a couple of coffees and a meal and end up spending less than you would do on dinner was part of why specialty coffee had a really niche environment to separate itself. And so version quickly to this strong reputation. It's kind of a joke for any barista coming from Melbourne in another country to approach a specialty coffee barista and tell them that you're from Melbourne, Australia. Starbucks put flat whites on the menu in its American stores because it was different. It was different than what the rest of the world was doing. I think though in the last 10 years, the rest of the world is starting to catch up and get clued in where we have still a very strong reputation for cafe culture. It's been replicated in other places. Yeah, awesome. Good little history lesson there for anybody who didn't know about the history of tea houses and coffee houses in the gold British Empire. So let us dive into your experience in hospitality 
and a little bit about your personal background that led you to founding Constance Coffee. Part of this was coming from South Africa and falling in love a little bit with coffee. In South Africa, there wasn't much of a specialty coffee wave of cafes growing just yet. We talk about specialty coffee in waves, and so second wave specialty coffee is fancy drinks like you might see at Starbucks or Costa Coffee in the UK or brands like that anywhere. And as a 15-year-old, I wasn't really aware of it. And so coming to Australia just before I turned 16, I was looking for anything to keep me occupied during my last two years of school here. It was a bit of a difficult entry into social spheres. And so my dad bought this little domestic espresso machine made by Sunbeam. It came with a little DVD that I watched. And I got to see Paul Bassett present about this coffee machine. As it happened, he was the 2002 World Barista Champion. So he's from Sydney, had this reputation back then of being good at coffee. I was blown away that there was a World Barista Championship. So I started following from 2007 onwards, and I decided that this fancy coffee where you were more of a fancy bartender than somebody just pulling beers, that was quite interesting, and I wanted to get involved. I came down originally to Melbourne to go to university, and going to a residential college was quite an experience. I guess university wasn't the pathway that I was going to use to get into any kind of employment. I don't regret my time there, but I decided to try and go into the coffee industry. Given that I'd seen the World Barista Championships and wanted to make that part of what I did, I thought that the presentation of coffee in that kind of way was the most sophisticated outcome for a specialty coffee. So wanting to do that, I decided to try and find a job in a coffee roasting company. Eventually I did. I started working essentially as a waiter and then learning to become a barista and learning more about roasting. Okay. Once you got into that roasting company, what was the experience like learning from the inside about the coffee industry in general rather than just the art and science of making coffee? You also took some of those skills on to becoming a business owner yourself. So talk us through that journey. Starting off, I was working for an Italian coffee roasting company, Devella, and definitely the education, learning to upsell, cross-sell, all of those sales tactics within a hospitality business were quite thorough. There's nothing like lots of work to learn processes in a systematic fashion. So by roasting lots and lots in that business, first up, I learned how to maintain my attention span over that course of a 10-hour day, say. Those lessons gave me a core of knowledge that has been very helpful to train others with. But as far as coffee education goes, it was quite limited to this is how we roast these coffees that we purchase for our blends that are this brand, that brand. So by being an Italian roaster, people then expect you to roast in an Italian fashion. And that kind of limits and narrows down the field of play that you have in terms of what kinds of coffees you can purchase and what kinds of roasting you can do that might satisfy your customers. Once you've built a reputation for a thing, it's quite difficult to do something else under the same brand or from the same premises. My manager there at Devella was looking to set up his own coffee roasting company and brunch cafe. So same concept as we'd had where we'd worked together at Debella, being invited along to join for this new business, which was 
the virtue of the coffee drink at the time and later became virtue coffee roasters i saw that as a positive shift for myself i came on board as the head roaster at the end of that first year of business i became a partner in that business i started to learn a lot more in the sense that rather than buying debella branded coffee from the debella wholesale group we would then be able to buy whatever coffee we chose getting to explore coffee from many different importer exporters rather than just one primary coffee trader. That really opened me up to sense and experience the things that I'd really been looking for. With Virtue, I got to experience the startup of a new brand and the startup of a new cafe and building reputations for both. Through the course of business, seeing us grow from nothing to sort of 10, 20 tons worth of coffee a year, and learning about how to take all of the processes online and to sell coffee at greater scale and seeing how to run and operate multiple coffee bars in different locations and keep teams calibrated and happy. I think the thing that really made me want to do my own brand to go my own way was the financial choice to buy coffees of a certain price rather than necessarily looking for coffees that I thought were the most delicious and then selling them at an appropriate price. Part of the thing with coffee is that a lot of the operators have been in business for a long time. They're looking to pay a certain amount for their coffee. And that means sometimes that instead of getting the very highest grade coffee, quite often in a cafe where you're just ordering a flat white, you might get surprisingly similar coffee to what you might find in a McDonald's or somewhere like that. 15 years ago, the way that coffee was perceived by the general public was largely quite homogenous. People have become more and more engaged and interested in different flavored things. If you consider the marketing of different flavor, I think the beer industry does really well to separate certain styles of processing, certain flavors, where it's from hops or malt or whatever. And I think the specialty coffee industry has, in the same time, in the same style, has communicated those things better. There is at least some core customers for craft beer, specialty coffee, natural wine, those kinds of products where people are more engaged now. There's more desire for people to communicate those things. In my course of buying green coffee for the business, I definitely saw a lot of coffees that I wished that I had a place to purchase and sell those coffees. At that point, it was probably halfway to the stage that I actually went my own way that the idea started to form. I will get you to speak about becoming a founder of your own company in a little bit. But before that, I am super curious. At the start of the show, I introduced you as the man behind a few award-winning coffees. I'd like you to share a little bit about those if you can. Sure. So back when, it seemed more important to look for anything to separate your brand of coffee and a cafe that has a nice looking Instagram and has some coffee awards to show off seems to do a little bit better from anyone's perspective. Over the course of business with Virtue, we entered and I roasted coffee for those competitions just to familiarize anyone listening. But basically, those coffees work on a mail-in format. So you'll sign up, pay your entry fee, and then with enough time for the correct aging of the coffee after roasting you'll then send up your coffee to where they run the competition in australia 
over the course of three to four days. There's a series of judging sessions, and so that'll be per category. A different set of tables will taste all of the coffees. So 2016, I think that we came away with maybe four or five medals, a silver and however many bronze medals, and maybe the bronze medals are a little bit more like participation trophies, but that's okay. But it's better to come away with those than nothing. For 2017, though, while we were up there for the event, doing the tasting and the judging, we were surprised and pleased to win a gold medal for the organic category that we'd entered a single origin coffee in. And actually, we got a silver medal for another organic coffee that year in the same competitions. For the year following, just given that we were opening a couple of other businesses at that stage, we didn't end up going back up for the competition, for the tasting or for the awards night. But we did enter something like 33 coffees and I think 28 or so of them ended up getting medals. And messages from friends who were at the awards night, just like, oh, look, oh, God, you're just getting everything. You know, I think it goes to show that maybe we were doing some pretty good roasting under the systems that I'd built over that time. I think if our Q score on the coffees that we were roasting at the time had been a little bit higher, we might have come away with silver medals more than bronzes. That's been the thinking behind what I want for Constance. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's a great segue into starting up Constance. You've got all of these medals around your neck, and you were having some thoughts about starting your own business. Let's talk about that business. Actually, to start off with, is there a story behind the name Constance? Absolutely. So the part of Cape Town in South Africa I'm from, I grew up in the southern suburbs, and my aunt and uncle were living on a farm, Clean Constantia. My uncle was working on this farm, Clean Constantia, that his father had bought, and Dougie and Lowell had essentially rebuilt this storied wine, Vinda Constance. And so it was the style of dessert wine that was so popular from that area that Jane Austen written about it. But essentially, rust in the early 1900s had destroyed all of it, all the vines. They weren't able to produce anything there for quite some time. But eventually, they replanted. It's a type of muscatel sweet wine. James Halliday has it as like a 95-point wine when you can buy it. It's like a $200 bottle. That story always captivated me. And a lot of my childhood was spent either in that area or visiting literally the farm where my aunt and uncle lived and just spending time there was always amazing. I think that the story here is just quite high quality, excellent products coming from somewhere else. If you think about South African made wine in England, uh, that that was the story I wanted to co-opt. Okay, great. So let's talk about what Constance is. Why is Constance different from any of the other brands of coffee that you could get? I think that anyone entering any kind of business where you're delivering a product, the joy is building something that you really love. And so for me myself, it's using my palate to select coffees that I think are delicious, roast them in a way that I think is delicious, and then share them in a way that I think is friendly and not overbearing. There are a lot of people that roast excellent coffee. I just choose the ones that I really like that I love to share with people, and I try to be really kind while doing it. And I think that mixture doesn't necessarily exist in the same fashion all the time. I think overall, the scale of operations for most successful specialty coffee roasting businesses 
are so big that you're almost getting a homogenous product as the output. There are a couple of key roasters in Melbourne that have huge, huge outputs. They have huge clients and they also supply other companies like petrol stations and McDonald's and 7-Eleven. They're padding out their bottom line by roasting commodity coffee that is very, very plain. The companies that I think that are doing really, really good work are very small-scale owner-operator, excitement-based businesses. And the thing that I see is choosing more single-origin coffees, sharing more coffees that are a little bit out there, but not only doing strange and unusual unicorn coffees, making things a little bit more approachable. So the blends that I roast should be not too challenging for most anyone to try. And I think having pretty clear communication so that people who found them interesting in one way can find another coffee that they like that is similar but different. Because I think contrasting experiences and somebody really getting involved in your tasting journey with any new product is always one of the best sensations. Consider when you go to a wine tasting or a whiskey tasting event, you get to sit and taste things side by side. I like to try to deliver that experience for my customers now. So running two different blends so that they can taste the difference and guiding them through how the coffee is different and why. Teaching people in a way where they don't feel instructed or told that they've done badly for not understanding, just to make it really accessible. Usually speaking, you can find some way to help people empathize with the experience that you'd like to share. And I really love that, sharing experiences with people. I heard a recent comparison about startup founders recently was, are you a missionary or a mercenary? Are you in it because there's a cause behind it versus are you in it because there's money behind it? Yeah, look, I, I think there was a post that I saw coffee trader, a friend of mine, so I buy coffee from him, shared on LinkedIn. And basically, it was just about who should be a coffee roaster. And I can think of quite a few startup coffee roasting operations that have come from a background of a different supply chain. So in this way, a hospitality supply group, they might sell paper goods and chemicals. They might decide, we're going to roast coffee now. We're going to leverage our current client list to basically step into this new market. And by doing so, that's the mercenary camp, right? My motivation is really to share coffees that I think are outstanding, that are delicious, that I buy from people who are invested in the places that they buy coffee from, and they're invested in the roasters who roast that coffee in the end. Understanding the supply chain a little bit better and sharing along some of that story of me buying coffee from Ephraim, who's an Ethiopian man who buys coffee in Ethiopia. People being in business because they love the industry rather than necessarily could see that it was a way to further vertically integrate and honestly look for profit at some other business expense. I think any large scale business hoping to keep their product and offering more consistent, I can get behind that. But in another way, buying more and more coffee from one supplier, looking for better and better financial terms, they keep looking for this advantage. And then eventually they break up with this supplier who's helped them grow and scale and done better for them financially. They then go, we're actually just not buying next week. It creates this little hiccup within the industry 
that doesn't really help everybody. We all deal with the same businesses. If I fall tomorrow and I have a lot of money that I owe those vendors, those vendors, to recoup that cost, will need to recoup it through their other clients. Those other clients are going to pay for uh, a new startup's mistakes. The learnings coming from a very large-scale business and then a very small-scale startup that, that did scale quite well. I learned a lot about what I would need to do to ensure my own success and how to keep things consistent and quite low-cost in a business sense so that I could keep offering things that I thought were fantastic. Okay, actually... You've raised a good point there about keeping things low cost. You've actually bootstrapped this, right? What was that like? Because to my knowledge, as somebody who's not hugely into coffee, coffee hardware is not cheap. So what was the process like for you to actually get the ball rolling on constants, roasting beans, and getting them shipped out the door? Obviously, I leveraged a few contacts to start things off. Coming out of lockdown... My partner and I had saved quite well through the end of 2020. We weren't traveling, we weren't going out as much. And so seeing that we had saved so well through that period, I felt confident that I'd be able to get started with quite a minimal capital investment. Given that I'd roasted quite a lot, I'd on a few occasions run roasting courses inside and outside of Virtue. I had some connections who were willing to let me rent time on their roasting equipment. And I started managing a coffee bar called Penny. It's inside a bike shop, Cycles Galleria. And that bike shop has recently sold to Trek. So I'm technically employed by a bike company and they buy coffee from my company. To start off with, I had a low capital option on roasting coffee for, for my business. And from that, by very carefully managing the cash flow and not taking a wage and doing all of those things that people tell you to do, having completed a bookkeeping course so that I could do my own accounting, I was able to ensure that I could keep as much cash in the business as I possibly could. Given then that I had the ability to help the cafe improve and that it was buying coffee from my company, there was a straightforward growth plan in that way. Obviously, that doesn't necessarily mean that I have all of the time in the world to devote to my own company, given that I manage a coffee bar for another business. But certainly, it's meant that I've had a stapled volume of sales. And so any effort I put into the cafe does pay some back into my own company as well. With that, obviously, it's easier to brand your own company if you've got all the time in the world. But I think any new startup will rely on how motivated you are as an individual. In one sense, a capital injection might be an easier pathway for me to have gotten started. But in this way, I think I've proved the concept to myself in terms of the kinds of coffee I want to serve and grow into my own brand at a pace that felt natural. Okay, so I've got two questions there. The first one is building that relationship so you could sell your coffee to the cafe that employs you. What were those first sales and marketing conversations like? How did that arrangement come about? In this case, I already known Mark, Director of Finance for Cycles Galleria, from a previous business. He was actually quite familiar with me there. 
I was serving coffee to Mark, this guy that I made a relationship with. I was like, hey, Mark, have you ever tried this drink called a magic? And then that was the drink of choice that he had after that point. And later, as it happened, because he knew me and he knew how passionate I was, it was a more straightforward conversation. You don't really know who you're serving when you're serving someone. And so I think sales, you don't want to end up being somebody's screenshot off of LinkedIn where they're like, oh, condolences to somebody. And also, by the way, new sales record. Like You don't want to be that guy. There's that phrase, management is personal. I think sales is exactly the same way. The effort that you put in and the empathy you extend in that process, quite often when it counts, will pay off. Put your best foot forward and where you can, be kind. That happened in February 21. So it's getting on to the 18-month mark now of actually roasting as Constance Coffee. Yeah, it's something that I've actually told a lot of the students that I mentor, that networking really matters, no matter what industry that you're in. You're basically engineering an increased likelihood of lucky strikes. 100%. Yeah, or as somebody else put it, you're increasing your luck surface area. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I think when you see it happen, it becomes very much more apparent how valuable that work can be. But I think for a lot of people who haven't had the opportunity or the serendipity hasn't quite been engineered yet, it can be a little bit of a slog. That actually leads me to another question that I had in terms of starting up the company. You could have sped it up a little bit if you took some outside investment rather than bootstrapping. And that was an opportunity that was on the table at one point. So I'm curious what your thought process was at that time when you could make the decision to accept it versus strike out on your own. Following the chat that we just had, you know, deciding on what pathway of growth first, I don't think for myself that external investment will be helpful or needful in my roasting company. But down the line, the intention is to look at some other pathways to expand beyond just doing Constance Coffee as a roasting company and look at potentially having other hospitality venues again. And in that case, external investors, I think, would be a very helpful method of improving the speed that I could make those businesses financially viable to myself and also deliver profits to those investors more rapidly. So having the coffee brand built up in the way that I felt was appropriate, in, in this kind of way, touching on that mercenary versus missionary linguistics from before, maybe I wanted to express the art that I have before having to formalize and make profitable the business of it. So... By taking things a little bit more slowly, I could feel out how much, how wide I could spread on my own and how varied I could make my offering without doing large scale business yet. So from that platform and following the pathway that I set in mind, the next scale for Constance itself is looking at industrial levels of scale, printed cups, that kind of thing. And in those kinds of ways, already having a reasonably positive cash flow means that I can actually go to a bank or a lender and look for money rather than necessarily looking for a relationship that would come with me giving over a unitary investment in the business before it is as valuable as it will be in 10 years time. 
So to an extent, having come through 10 years of hospitality and coffee roasting and it being a hobby and a passion and something that I do every day that I think about almost all the time, not having that payoff in my own business was maybe one fear that I had. And in a very significant way, taking on board a partner, whether they're silent or they want to be involved in the business, I didn't feel confident that we were through lockdown yet. And I didn't want to take anyone else's money and have them be a party to what I felt could be very straightforward loss-making exercises. And so that that's pretty much it. Given that I was trying to leave a previous business as well and dealing with the kind of mental health after effects of that, it made sense to take things a little bit more slowly and go by my own steam in that way. Which is not to say that it's always easy or that having $100,000 in the bank wouldn't just necessarily be more straightforward. I really like what I'm doing and keeping it very small scale keeps me very much in touch with every scale of the business too. Whereas I think once you scale up a business, you have to change out of operational roles pretty quickly. You've got to be less on the ground and more overarching in your view of the business. It doesn't mean that you're not working all the time, but it definitely means that you're not in touch with your customers. Having this varied hybrid role for myself now has been super enjoyable. And those are the things that I really love is sharing coffee with people who buy it to have it at home and aren't that different from me. They just like good coffee too. Primarily, the main thing was that going through the series of little lockdown events definitely made me not want to build up a bricks and mortar operation. Little lockdowns is an understatement, I would think, especially for a business such as yours, which actually brings to mind a couple of questions I had about risk in terms of coffee, because if anybody doesn't know anything about coffee, they'll probably have heard the term Java before as a synonym for coffee. And that strikes to coffee being primarily grown in the tropics, right? Melbourne, Melbourne is not in the tropics. You mentioned that you source some beans from Ethiopia. And I see on your website, you've got beans from a variety of different countries. So that introduces a lot of supply chain risk to your business, which over the last couple of years, lockdowns aside, supply chains have gone haywire. If I may jump in there, supply chain risk for me would imply that we would have a stoppage in terms of supply. Maybe volatility is a better way to describe that because before our chat today, I was roasting some fresh coffee, Ethiopian coffee. You know, it's taken three months longer than it did last year to land at port. Part of that's down to issues with shipping. And the cost this year for similar types of coffee, even though I was buying pretty high-grade stuff before, on a commodity scale, coffees last year doubled in price. But for especially fancy coffees, a lot of them have come up in price by between 30 and 50%, which is still a huge, big change, right? I guess the thing there is being proactive is the main way to avoid disappointment. Tell your customers early, hey guys, look, prices are coming up. This isn't about you. This isn't about me. I'm doing the best that I can to keep my costs low, but I cannot afford to sell you the same type of coffee this year at the same price as last year. There definitely is risk in coffee. Consider then that maybe you might have a supply agreement in place where you've got a stipulated price point rather than an agreed-upon discount off of your retail price. 
right? Those are two separate ways to negotiate the thing. It's like a pretty firm stage in my mind to say agreed upon discount so that then should I need to vary my retail pricing, then unfortunately, by necessity, the price on an agreed supplied contract would also vary as well. One of the hard problems is that for, for Italy, the, the one euro espresso has essentially further and further commodified the quality of that coffee. Over 20 years worth of that being the price point, the farmers producing the coffee necessarily have needed to change larger scale organizations with lower grade quality just to satisfy a price point. That kind of volatility has been somewhat difficult in that uh, the cash flows that I wrote up for myself to start off with very quickly needed adjusting. But given that I have most of the other costs in hand, that there wasn't that much variation. For example, zero went up in price by 5%, wages came up by 5%, those kinds of things. So the end final cost adjustment on my retail price only came up by 3 to 5%, depending on the coffee. It's difficult to forecast, given that port charges can vary so significantly now. One of the hardest problems is you can pick a coffee, pay the farmer, take it to a processing station, take it to a, a mill, pay all of those guys along the way. And at that point where you've got coffee ready for export a month after that final landing, you're then hunting and hoping that the container contract that the exporter or importer has arranged for is going to be fulfilled, rather than just the stock sitting at port waiting a month extra. And those shipping entities aren't necessarily going to say, oh, we're so sorry that it's taken us a month longer to organize this. What they'll do is they'll hand you basically a bill for storing your stock there. So for everyone in, in these kinds of supply chains, the costs are escalating and the costs that people anticipate they're going to pay are largely a bit higher. The fresh quote Guatemala that I bought this year came up by 10% from the quote time to the coffee landing. And that was just port charges. The US dollar changes a little bit overnight and that'll cause your costs to fluctuate a little bit. But at the moment, the bigger issue is shipping. I'm still buying the same grade of coffee. Quite often in this sort of instance, a roaster, a very large scale business that has a lot of dollar-based agreements in place rather than percentage discount agreements in place, they will bulk and buy something cheaper of perhaps a similar quality at a lower stated grade or perhaps at a lower quality just to achieve their pricing as it was to fulfill their contracts along the line. I'm not necessarily that impressed when people are making those sorts of choices. So I like to do the same thing. And unfortunately, that meant that I needed to announce that my prices were coming up for this year. Which makes total sense when you break it down like that. In the middle of 2022, there was the whole fiasco of spiking energy prices. Did that have an effect on you at all? To some extent, but less so than most other things. Obviously, you look at sort of petrol pricing now and whether we have a fuel excise or no fuel excise at the moment, it's been up and down. So to some extent, yes, but based on the volume of the roasting that I'm doing and the amount that I'm driving, it's not been the largest contributor to changes in costs. The biggest one is definitely 
definitely the increase on green coffee for me. Yeah. Okay. All right. So you've got some of those risks and volatility very much in the foreground. And you mentioned that eventually you want to get your business to the scale where you can have a bricks and mortar storefront as well. When you're thinking about expanding, what would you be looking for? There's a few ways to consider this. The ideal situation down the line ideally would have the ability to roast on site. And so by having that capacity there, we're running a mixed business and I'm not then necessarily required to look at only the characteristics that would make for a successful hospitality business. So both Debella and Virtue then had strong retailing areas for coffee equipment and for coffee. I really love having those kinds of areas in a hospitality venue. I guess the key here for the final thing that I have in my head is quite a large scale floor area. So it might be as much as 250 or 300 square meters to allow for a productive roasting operation, but also to allow for enough room to do retail sales of both coffee and coffee equipment in enough space that it's not cramped or awkward, um, and then allow enough space for a reasonably busy cafe. These kinds of businesses often are able to be very, very busy. My ideal situation would be to have slightly less business in the cafe. That sounds funny to hope for less business, but I think in a way, having that time to talk to people about the product and, and really show off the product means then that you've got the capacity to create sort of cellar door environments. I think hospitality is almost by necessity the ideal situation to showcase coffee in. There are a couple of key examples of coffee-only shops in Melbourne where, say, for a market lane cafe, you walk in and it's very clearly just serving coffee. They don't have every kind of alternate milk and they retail their own coffee and they have a finely tuned selection of retail equipment and they roast good coffee. Those kinds of environments I find quite rewarding. I think the best sort of places also have some view of the work being done as well. I love going to like beer breweries, whiskey distilleries, where you can see part of the action. Every space can have a business to suit. If you don't need customers to walk into the office, then you don't necessarily need a really flashy looking place. If you need high foot traffic, then maybe a small venue doing lots of takeaway is going to work out. If you've got a small venue that is a destination place, it makes it a little bit harder. There are three things that we talk about in business. It's location, location, location. You've got to design your business carefully around the space that you choose or maybe with the business in mind that you want to execute on, you've got to choose the space very carefully. Yeah, totally. So there's a variety of factors to consider when you're thinking about what your bricks and mortar storefront would look like. You've only spoken about opening up a 250, 300 square meter venue singular as opposed to plural. So I'm wondering if everything goes right for you, is that all you're aiming for? Or are you going to aim for a bit more of an empire longer down the line? Having come up through a couple of different businesses, either already finely tuned at scale or helping a business grow to that kind of scale where 
uh, the management becomes more hands-off. I definitely want to move away from handling the financial arrangements within my business and look more towards acting as an educator and hype machine. I was talking a little bit about the 2007 World Barista Championships and James Hoffman won that one. If you guys are listening and want to see the kind of thing that I'd really love to do, his YouTube channel is really exciting in that his business is so developed and scaled up that he basically almost doesn't have a job anymore. He just gets to be the excitement guy in coffee. Essentially acting as that kind of person within the business without necessarily having to externally look for the excitement fuel. There's a lot to be done with social marketing for any new business. And it's the kind of content that I really love. Down the line from now, I'd really love to see myself creating some content like that. Honestly, just to learn a little bit more and share that with others, because I think that's the best part of any kind of business is sharing, I guess, successes and sharing information. Okay, so the name of this podcast is Promise. And there's two meanings to the word promise. One is obviously to show potential. And it looks like you've got a real budding coffee business here with a lot of meaning and purpose behind it. And the other meaning for promise is obviously to make commitments. So if you want to become that hype machine social media guru about coffee, what's a commitment that you could make now for yourself or for others to actually make that come into reality? I think very simply is be a good boss. I think a lot of product-based businesses scale up by pushing others to work extraordinarily hard without necessarily extending much empathy or care. In any business, you've got to look at your suppliers, your vendors, you've got to look at your clients, your customers, you've got to look at your employees. You've got to treat each of them fairly from their own perspective. From every perspective, you can try to understand what would be the best outcome for them and to really engage with others and to help them achieve more of what they'd like and to remove things from the front of them that are making them unhappy. And I think by doing so, by being a good boss, a good manager, a good leader, you can be a person that provides help and makes people have better days rather than worse ones. I think that is the perfect place to wrap up our conversation. I've had a really good time chatting with you today. I'll be really curious to see where Constance is in six to 12 months or so. Um, how do you feel about checking in in that time? Yeah, absolutely. Hopefully we're getting a bit more coffee out of the door. Yeah, awesome. Now, for anybody who wants to find out more about yourself or Constance Coffee, are there any social media links or anything like that you'd like to drop for them? Absolutely. So you can find us online at Constance.coffee and Constance Coffee Co. on both Instagram and Facebook. Awesome. Thank you once again, Kieran. Hey, pleasure. Thanks very much, Sean. And that's it for today's episode of Promise. Be sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes on your favorite podcast platform. Do you think you or someone you know would have ideas worth sharing? Send me an email to sean at promise.fm or DM me on Twitter at sean underscore AHD. Otherwise, stay tuned, subscribe, and learn what it's like before the success, when what we've got is promise.